The following sermon was delivered by Senior Pastor Scott Black Johnston during morning worship at Fifth Avenue Presbyterian Church in New York City. We welcome you to worship with our vibrant community of faith every Sunday on the corner of Fifth Avenue and 55th Street in the heart of Midtown Manhattan. And now, here is Dr. Black Johnston. Let us pray. Gracious God, by the power of your Holy Spirit, open our hearts and our minds so that as your scripture is read and your word is proclaimed, we might hear what it is that you are saying to us this day. And we might dedicate our lives to responding. This we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. This fall here at Fifth Avenue Church, we are working on a project. We are curating our hearts. Our goal is a sort of deep clean for the soul. We are sweeping out destructive and unhealthy habits, and we are reorganizing our inner selves through sacred practices and commitments. In week one of the series, we addressed the state of our hearts by contemplating the phrase, you are what you love. And we did our best to get honest. Sure, we say we love this and that, but deep down, the truth often proves different. We asked, what do our actions reveal about what we really love? Some of us, it turns out, love anger. Some love gossip. Some love money. To curate our hearts means that we, that we shine a light in its darkest corners and wrestle with the demons hiding there, wrestle with them, bind them, toss them out, because after all, you are what you love. In week two, we addressed something central to our faith, and yet mysterious as all get out, we asked, what does it mean to love God? We thought together about the things that stand in the way of loving God, and we considered what it might look like in a, in a very concrete manner to love God. Last week, one of the things that we observed about falling in love is that it involves paying attention to the things that someone else loves. And the same can be said of our relationship with God. To love God, to really love God, means that we love the things that God loves. And that brings us to installment number three in this series. Today, we're going to begin considering the things that God loves, and we're going to start with justice. Listen now. For God's word to you, as it echoes to us first from the book of Exodus, chapter 23, beginning with the first verse. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with the wicked to act as a malicious witness. You shall not follow a majority in wrongdoing. When you bear witness in a lawsuit, you shall not side with the majority so as to pervert justice. 
nor shall you be partial to the poor in a lawsuit. When you come upon your enemy's ox or donkey going astray, you shall bring it back. When you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden and you would hold back from setting it free, you must help set it free. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in their lawsuits. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent or those in the right, for I will not acquit the guilty. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the officials and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a resident alien. You know the heart of an alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. Our second reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, beginning with the first verse. Again, listen now for God's word to you. Then Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city, there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while, he refused. But later, he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? This is the word of God for you the people of God. Thanks be to God. It's not fair. Two children in front of me in the park were arguing over whose turn it was to hold the leash for their new puppy. Mom, three syllables at least, Mom, Macy's had Cooper forever. It's not fair. It's not fair. Everyone in this room has uttered that phrase at some point in their life. Actually, I'd put good money on the fact that I think everyone in this room has probably looked at some aspect of their lives or something happening out in the world in the last 24 hours and thought, it's not fair. Humans are hardwired to look for injustice. Psychologists tell us that once children reach the age of four or five years old, they begin to notice inequalities. Children find these disparities to be both confusing and bothersome, upsetting. They demand that their parents explain. Why are things like this? Why does my older brother have a different bedtime than me? 
Why do I have carrot sticks in my lunch when all the other kids have cookies? Children's questions about inequality start simple. But as a child grows and experiences more of the world and their place in it, their inquiries grow more complicated. Why did the tooth fairy bring my friend Sydney a $20 bill when I only got a quarter? Why is Jimmy so good at math, even though I study hard and still struggle? From early on, we are attuned to the presence of inequalities in the world. And our sensitivity to these disparities eventually morphs into a wider and more complicated discussion, a discussion about justice. What is justice? Are equality and justice the same things? What might a just society look like? Today we're going to dig into these questions. We're going to talk about justice, and and we're going to do that primarily because justice is something that God loves. In the Psalms, in the prophets, in the Gospels, the Almighty is described as a just and righteous God. In speaking to the prophet Isaiah, God says, I, the Lord, love justice. The righteous Lord, says Psalm 11, loves justice. Over and over, the good book tells us God has a heart for justice. What about us? Do we have room for justice in our hearts? To answer, we're going to take a a, a brief a kind of absurdly brief, quick survey of the concept of justice in human history. What have some of our best thinkers said about justice? And along the way, we're going to keep popping back and forth between philosophers and uh, those in our tradition, parts of our tradition that have had things to say about what justice is, what sort of justice does God really love? And then finally, we're going to talk about what it really looks like to embrace God's justice in this world. That's a big list. It's a long sermon. (laughs) Raven, are you comfortable over there? All right, let's go. We're going to start today with Plato. 300 years before Christ, Plato spent a good bit of time talking about the meaning of justice for Athenian society. To start, the philosopher recognized that all members of society are not equal. Moreover, Plato did not believe that justice could or should eliminate inequality. To Plato, justice wasn't about equality, justice was about harmony. A just culture was a peaceful society in which everyone understood and fulfilled their proper, if unequal, role. Now, there are all sorts of reasons to to critique Plato's approach to justice, and we're going to get there in a second. But before we do, I'd like to acknowledge 
one piece of, of Plato's thought on this matter that I think is truly helpful. And to do that, let's return to that question, why is Jimmy better at math than me? Plato would answer, that's just the way it is. People have different abilities. How should we respond to this? Well, we should still, of course, teach basic math skills, but we should also recognize that our end goal is not for everyone to be able to do calculus. And I think most of us would agree with Plato here. We all have different talents and abilities and interests, and any society that would try to flatten those differences, to, to iron them out, would be both boring and tyrannical. It would be unjust. Plato, however, however does not stop with aptitude <laughs> when he's making a defense of inequality. And this is where he runs into trouble. He believed and taught that people were inherently unequal in all sorts of different ways. Women were not equal, they were inferior to men, in Plato's way of thinking. Slaves were not equal, they were inferior to free citizens, and so on. To Plato, a just society was one in which each individual was treated in a manner befitting their unequal station. A just society was where everyone was given their unequal due. Now, this notion, Plato's claim that human beings were by nature inherently unequal, dominated Western thought for almost 2,000 years, from about 300 BC to about the 1700s. It undergirded feudalism. Peasants are not equal to their lords. It undergirded the slave trade and various violent conflicts. Those people, they're not our equals. It really wasn't until the 1700s that Western intellectuals began a concerted pushback against Plato's thoughts about the nature of humanity. And in making this effort, many of the thinkers who were engaged in this project made appeal to a curious source, the Bible. Some of the most early and important criticisms of Plato can be found in the Bible. Take, for example, the book of Galatians. In Galatians, the Apostle Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here, Paul, who is very aware of Plato, upends the very inequalities that Plato claimed had been chiseled into the structure of the universe. The inequalities you think are so permanent, Paul declared, have been vanquished by Jesus. We are all equal in the eyes of God. Now fast forward to the 1700s. Declarations of equality found in the good book become source materials for people developing a very different view of humanity. You can hear it in an impure, not fully developed form in the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain 
unalienable rights, that among these are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, and that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Now, Thomas Jefferson, of course, was, was not quite there yet. He did not think women or slaves or Native Americans were among those having unalienable rights. There was still platonic prejudice clinging to his perspectives. But Jefferson was taking steps toward a radically new perspective, one that would sweep across the globe, the notion that all people, all, all, all people are created equal. And the role of a just society and a just government is to create a context in which these co-equal citizens can be free to chase after happiness. Now, how should a society go about that important work? Well, a lot of different answers have been given depending on the context in which you're embedded and the perspective with which you view the, the, the problem. The libertarian responds, a society is most just when it maximizes human freedom. The authoritarian response, a society is most just when it meets out equal and appropriate punishments for crimes. The communist responds, a society is most just when everyone is given the same set of resources to make life happen. What should a just society look like? Enter John Rawls. Rawls was an American political philosopher and Harvard professor whose 1971 book, A Theory of Justice, has had more influence on modern conversations about justice than any other thinker. In the book, Rawls argued that a just society will ensure a basic set of rights. And these rights are things that you're familiar with, things like political liberties, freedom of speech, freedom of thought, Equality before the law. You and who you know, I'm looking at some of our attorneys out here, you and who you know is not supposed to mean that you get special treatment in regard to the law of the land. That's, by the way, that's right there in that Exodus passage that I read, right? It's supposed to be fair. Equal access to the political system. One person, one vote. Every society, Rawls argued, ought to ensure equal access to these basic freedoms. But, but what about economic and social inequalities? Clearly, they exist. What, Rawls wondered, should a just society do about such disparities? To respond, Rawls created one of the greatest thought experiments of all time. It's called the veil of ignorance. Imagine, he asked, imagine that you haven't been born yet. And you're floating above the planet, circling around and around it. Rawls was fascinated with the Apollo and Gen Gemini space missions, so he liked to put you up there, sort of in a capsule, going around the, the planet. And you haven't been born yet, and you're looking down at the planet, and what do you see? Well, you see the world, and it's all its beauty and ugliness. You see wealth and privilege, and you see poverty and pestilence. You see social ills like racism and cycles of abuse and drug addiction. 
You see fantastic modern universities and, and shiny cars and fabulous clothes. You see people eating lobster for supper and you see children spooning dirt into their mouths. Now, says Rawls, given that you do not know where you will be born, whether there will be flies circling around your head or a silver spoon stuck in your mouth, what changes would you make? How would you set up society? How would you make it more just? Now, in running this experiment, I should say Rawls is something of a realist. He argues that the complete elimination of inequality is impossible and perhaps even undesirable. How so? Well, first off, you want to allow people the freedom to make choices about their careers and interests and how hard and, and how long they will work. And the result of these choices will produce inequalities. It's also true Rawls argues that inequality can sometimes, although not always, benefit those who have less economic and social capital. Imagine, he says, two different political and economic systems. One has complete equality, but everyone's standard of living is quite low. The other system has inequalities in it, but the people at the lowest rung of the ladder have a standard of living that is higher than all of the people in this other society. Which society would you choose to be born into? In other words, the thought experiment designed by Rawls forces people to think about the people in the world whose lives are in the most precarious of situations. People with little or no access to economic opportunity. A just society, Rawls argued, focuses its attention on lifting the bottom rung. Now you might argue we can do better than that. And many of today's political philosophers do. Rawls died in 2002. But almost all of today's political philosophers start with Rawls and the veil of ignorance. And Rawls is not a bad touchstone, I think, for those of us who hail from the Judeo-Christian tradition. Think of our opening passage today. In this section of Exodus, people are encouraged to be gracious and fair in seeking justice. Don't side with the majority simply because it'll be to your advantage. Don't neglect to free a donkey caught in a thorny bush. Yes, even if that donkey belongs to someone you don't like. Be kind. Be impartial. Don't give a person a break simply because they're poor. Hold everyone to high standards. But also don't heap extra burdens on a person simply because they're poor. Hold yourself to high standards. Do not oppress those who are in the most precarious economic and social position. Do not oppress, says Exodus, the resident alien, the immigrant, a person with no financial resources and precious little opportunity. Now this theme, by the way, occurs again and again throughout scripture. Those without access to the levers of the economy and those who face societal obstacles to getting ahead are given special status in the good book. They are often listed as a sort of trinity. Look after the widows, 
the orphans, and the aliens in your midst. In the ancient world, these people, widows, orphans, and foreigners, faced tremendous challenges just to survive, much less thrive. If you were circling the planet waiting to be born, you would not want to draw the short straw and end up a widow or an orphan or a foreigner. True then, true now, right? And yet, the Bible tells us God holds this group of people especially close to the divine heart. The book of Deuteronomy declares God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus says, Truly, if you care for one of the least of my brothers or sisters, it is as if you were caring for me. In other words, before there was a veil of ignorance, there was God directing our attention to those who struggle, encouraging us to strive for a just society that would focus on those in need. This is our charge. We are called to help the least of our brothers and sisters. The Hebrew word for this, for justice, is sedek. It means to make things right. Sedek, to make things right. This is our summons. This is what God would put in our heart, the desire to make things right. Now, as simple as that instruction sounds, though, it does not always find a comfortable home in our hearts. Why? Well, justice can be crowded out by selfishness, by narcissism, by a lack of human empathy. We can convince ourselves that that helping those in need means less for me and mine. Sometimes the barrier to justice is hard-heartedness, cynicism. Nothing we do is going to make a difference. I know a fellow here in the city, he's aware that I'm a pastor and he likes to poke at me. I think I annoy him. Recently he said to me, okay, do-gooder, tell me one thing. Give me one world problem that humans have actually solved. I paused. And then I said, okay, smallpox. We eradicated smallpox. He smiled kind of painfully. Okay, I'll give you that. Smallpox. You can check that box. But Rev, the list of unchecked boxes is long, really, really long. And he's right. This week, in advance of the United Nations meeting, the Wall Street Journal reported that in the last 20 years, the number of deaths of children under the age of five in the world has dropped from 69 per 1,000 live births to 39 per 1,000 live births. We've cut it almost in half. With education and healthcare efforts, the world has made progress, and that is good news. The bad news is that there are still children out there dying for a lack of basic healthcare and food. There's a whole band of countries, the Journal Illustrated, in Central Africa where because of climate change and terrible drought, because of failed government and persistent violence, 
it has been very difficult to move the needle on child mortality. My cynical friend is right. The list is long. And at times, it's very difficult to see progress. Today's story from the Gospel of Luke, though, shines a light on this reality in in what I think is a helpful and encouraging way. In, In this parable, a widow makes an appeal to an unjust judge. She's trying to get an answer to get some justice from a magistrate, we are told, who does not care. He has no regard for God or for the plight of humankind. He's a cynic. He's a tool. He sold out a long time ago. But every day she comes and raps on his door and asks for justice. And every day he pours himself another glass of bourbon and puts earplugs in and ignores her pleas. Until one day when the judge relents. He gives up. The judge has just been worn down by her badgering. As Jesus tells the story, says the Gospel of Luke, he tells it so that we will not lose heart. It's right there in the passage, first verse. Jesus tells this story so that we will not lose heart. And in that way, it makes sense. Those in pursuit of justice will encounter cynical, mean-spirited, and just plain unresponsive folk. You will be told, no, no, hell no, and doors will close in your face. But do not lose heart, says Jesus. If your cause is just, God will eventually pierce even the hardest of hearts. Of course, hard hearts are not the only thing getting in the way of justice. Sometimes the biggest impediment to justice is people who claim that they're all about justice. A couple of weeks ago, a friend of mine was in a meeting listening to a presenter speak about how we often isolate ourselves with a tribal mentality. One of the listeners took umbrage at this language and called the presenter out. He claimed that she was a privileged person who had no right to use a Native American term like tribal in a derogatory manner. It was, he asserted, a justice issue. Someone else in the room wondered if the conversation might be turning anti-Semitic because, after all, she'd been brought up to respect the 12 tribes of Israel. Someone else then wondered if it might be just possible that the word tribe could transcend different cultures. It was quite a kerfuffle. Accusations were made. Feelings were hurt. Apologies were issued. And when it was all over, a number of people left feeling shame and guilt and anger. Was justice served? In a piece published in the New York Times this past month, Loretta Ross, an African-American feminist scholar, argued that our call-out culture has gotten out of control. If we turn every awkward moment, she says, into a justice issue, we are trivializing and hindering the real and difficult work that actually needs to be done to bring about justice. Ross writes, I too have been called out, usually for a prejudice I have against someone or for using insensitive language that hasn't kept up with rapidly changing conventions. And that's part of everyone's learning curve, but still I felt hurt, embarrassed, and defensive. The heart of the matter is, says Ross, 
there's a much more effective way to build social justice movements. They happen in person, in real life. Patrice Kahn Cullors, a founder of the Black Lives Matter movement, writes, people don't understand that organizing isn't going online and cussing people out or going to a protest and calling something out. It's about relationships. Justice is relationships. Today's text would agree. Those who are willing to bulldoze over other people in pursuit of justice inevitably hurt their cause. But the widow, persistently returning to the judge's door, she exhibits a different and perhaps more effective way. Miroslav Volf is a theologian at Yale Divinity School, and he writes and teaches about justice. Wolf has a fascinating background for this work. He grew up in a portion of Yugoslavia that was occupied by Serbia in his youth and young professional days. And as a Protestant pastor in an area of the world that was occupied by an Orthodox Christian military, Wolf was viewed with great suspicion. And because of this, he was repeatedly arrested and interrogated by Serbian forces. Eventually, he and his family had to flee, and Wolf's home was destroyed by the Serbian military. Years later, reflecting back on that time, Wolf writes, if you want justice, but nothing but justice, you will inevitably get injustice. If you want justice without injustice, you must want love. And that's a complicated and I think profound claim and I'm gonna take a minute and try to break it down. To some, the pursuit of justice becomes a broad license for bad behavior and aggressive tactics. We see this all the time. Yes, I'm behaving badly, but it's because I care so much. And this tit-for-tat retributive mindset, Wolf argues, has consequences. If you want justice and nothing but justice, you inevitably end up with injustice. Too often, people in pursuing justice contribute to the cycle of violence in the world. They add to the list of injustices. If you want to do away with injustice, really do away with injustice, says Wolf. You've got to want something more than justice. You have to want love. Now, what does that look like? In May of 2017, Taylor Dumpson became the student body president at American University in Washington, D.C. She was the first African-American woman just two years ago to be elected student president in the university's 150-year history. And it was quite an accomplishment. It was also the beginning of a terrible day for her. On returning from her inauguration, Ms. Dumpson was greeted with the news that a masked man 
had hung nooses strung up with bananas all around the outside of her sorority house. And then things took a turn for the worse. Andrew Anglin, a white supremacist, posted the story about the nooses and the bananas on his website, The Daily Stormer. Full of hate, Anglin decided to pile on. He asked his followers to unleash a troll storm on Ms. Dumpson, and they did. The steady rain of racist and misogynist posts and tweets and threats were awful. So awful, Dumpson reported, that she eventually found herself curled up on her dorm room floor in a fetal position weeping. Fortunately, though, she didn't stay there. A pre-law student, Dumpson, had the gumption to sue the Daily Stormer. She sued the website and its publisher for harassment, and just a week and a half ago, she won. Taylor Dumpson won a $750,000 verdict against the white supremacist who called for the troll storm. But that's not all. While the publisher of the Daily Stormer has refused to respond to the lawsuit in any way, one of the sub-trolls who participated in the hate has. A young man, a teenager from the west coast of this country, reached out to authorities and told them that he wanted to repent. Ms. Dumpson agreed to meet with him. Now, friends asked her, why in the world would you want to meet with one of these guys? And she responded, I believe in restorative justice. I believe hearts can change. And I want this fellow to see me as a real person with real feelings, up close and personal. So, just a couple of days ago, they met. The young man looked her in the eye and without cynicism or snark, apologized. It took, I'm sure, tremendous courage for Taylor Dumpson to sit down with a fellow who had trolled her so mercilessly. It took something else too. It took love to sit down with that tormentor. A love for truth-telling, a love for humanity at its ugliness. It took love persistent, I'm gonna keep knocking on this door, deep down love for justice. Now this is no easy sort of love, but it is the sort of love that has power power to change hearts, power to convert a troll and maybe even an unjust judge. It's the sort of courageous love that just might remake this messed up world. If only there were room for it in our hearts. Go from this place and out into the world with hearts full of justice, trusting in the love of God, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
and clinging to one another in the power and solidarity of the Holy Spirit. Amen. We hope this sermon has been meaningful to you and provided a message of hope, encouragement, and good news. If you are in New York City, we invite you to visit our historic church and join us for worship. You will find our address, worship calendar, and other information on our website, fapc.org. If you would like to help support this audio ministry, please text the dollar amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646-491-8331. Again, that is the amount of your gift, followed by the word sermons, to 646 491 Thank you and God bless.